0: Well, it is so beautiful out, and uh, we're just rejoicing in all that the Lord is doing. And what a delight to live in a place where we see His hand so powerfully expressed. I mean, you know, there, there were times... I've, I've been in snowstorms in Idaho and whiteouts where you can't see but a few feet in front of you. I have never been in a rainstorm where I could see about 10 feet, and that was it. Now, that's that's some serious rain. That's the power of our God. That is the amazing expression uh, of just the, the most infantile part of all that He is. The most magnificent expression that we can conceive, and yet it's nothing for Him. Oh, He is glorious. Our text this morning reveals a great portion of that glory. We're in Hebrews chapter 9, if you'd turn there in your Bibles. Hebrews chapter nine and verse six is going to be where we begin formally today. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, and if you forgot yours, please do use it. It's on page twelve hundred and one. Page twelve hundred and one is where you'll find Hebrews chapter nine. Our text today reminds me of some kids, we, some hikes we used to take as kids in Idaho. You'd get started, and on your way, you could you could see in the distance the peak that you were seeking to climb. You'd walk several miles to the base, and sometimes you'd still see that peak, but not as fully in view because it was kind of covered by part of the mountain. So you'd start up that path. You'd hike for quite a while, sometimes several hours, and you still you couldn't see the peak. You couldn't see where you were going. At some point, you'd look up, and you'd think that you saw it, and so you'd start following this ridge, and you'd get to what you thought for a while had been the peak, but it wasn't. It's just uh, another point on the horizon, another false high point on a ridge. Sometimes you could see the peak and, and wouldn't, uh, wouldn't be able to recognize it, even until you were within a few hundred feet, particularly when it was a fairly rugged terrain. And then finally you'd get there, you'd stand on that peak, and you'd look out to see... Everything for miles and miles around, as if you were on the top of the world, and it was glorious to behold. Well, this is a lot like our text today. We began last week looking at the earthly glory of the tabernacle. And now we approach the mountaintop in seeing Christ's superiority in the comparison of these two tabernacles. This is reflected in our title this morning that I've chosen. And I've called our message today, The Revelation of Inconceivable Glory. The Revelation of Inconceivable Glory. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 6, as I mentioned, is our text. But this is all one unit from the beginning of chapter 9. So I want to read it all to set the stage for you. So I'm going to begin reading at verse 1 and we'll carry through verse 12. Follow along, if you would, as I read our text. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies having a golden altar of incense, and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things have been so prepared... The priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Praise the Lord for his word. In our text today, we're going to see the prog- the progression of God's revelation as he describes the tabernacle. We're going to see this progression that moves forward, but yet we're not going to see the full expression of it until we get to the end. But all along, we'll see high points that draw us further and further through the path. Last week, verse 1 transitioned us out of the previous comparison of the superiority of the new covenant into the comparison of the two tabernacles. The earthly sanctuary was where the divine worship was to occur, that is, it was the place where the old covenant was enacted. Where the law was executed. We talked last week about all of those details, and all of this centered around the law, and particularly around the three major feasts, the three major times where Israel was commanded to go to Jerusalem that occurred at the Passover feast and the feast of first fruits, which followed the Passover. It occurred at the Feast of Pentecost, and then it also occurred at the Feast of Booths. These were the three feasts when all Israel was commanded to come to Jerusalem. But keep in mind, although there was the celebration of the feast that was to occur, every one of those occurrences was when each of the worshipers were to bring their sacrifice before the priests to offer in behalf of their sins and the sins of their families. So there was this solemn assembly in addition to the feasts. All of this was according to the law in keeping with the old covenant per the regulations of God, and this was just the beginning, and all of this was executed and carried forth in the tabernacle. In verse 2, the ascent began as we saw the holy place. Now, as we discussed last week, you remember that the tabernacle was broken into two rooms. It was broken into the holy place, the outer room, a room of about 30 by 30 by 30 feet tall. And then it was broken into the holy of holies, another adjacent and identical room, 30 by 30 by 30. So these two rooms were together, separated only by the veil. In the holy place, in the outer room, as it's called, there were two fixtures that are described initially. The table for the showbread, for the bread of the presence. And then there was the lampstand. The holy of holies contained the Ark of the Covenant, and it had the mercy seat and the cherubim upon it. And adjacent to The Holy of Holies was the golden altar. It was actually in the holy place, but its function more closely associated with the Holy of Holies, and it was adjacent to the veil that separated them. Verses 3 to 5 showed the Holy of Holies, and again, these rooms were separated by that veil and the altar of incense. Now you can go back and listen to last week's message and hear of some of the incredible details that the text describes about those. But already there was a great progression from the overview of the tabernacle function to the holy place and onward to the holy of holies. We've been drawn through. And with that progression there is an ever narrowing sphere of influence and exposure. That is, when we consider the tabernacle itself, there was a court around that tabernacle. That's where the altar was, where they would burn the sacrifices. And there was the bronze laver, where the priests would wash after doing and performing the sacrifices. So these are outside the tabernacle, and in that area, all of the priests and the high priest... And also, all of the Israelite men could come as they brought their sacrifice. Once we went into the holy place, the only ones that were allowed in there were the priesthood. Not the Levites any longer. They were still outside. Just the priests and the high priests. And then there was the the most narrowing into the holy of holies, where only the high priest went, and only once per year. And that brings us to verse 6 in our text, the revelation of inconceivable glory. And with that, our first point. And that first point is the incredible glory recapped in verses 6 to 7. The incredible glory recapped. The verse begins in verse 6 with an introductory clause that, that summarizes the first five verses and carry us into this extension of the topic where it says, Now these things have been so prepared. Now these things have been so prepared. As the author reminds us of these things that he's just spoken about, the things which have been so prepared, we're again brought to consider the incredible glory that's represented in this tent. I mean, from the outside, this just looked like a big tent. Because our focus is not on the temples, but it is on the original tabernacle. That large tent that went in the wilderness, that from the outside didn't look like anything that incredible. But inside had those wood walls that are covered with gold that shimmering lamp that would light it. And then all of the artifacts leading to the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat and the cherubim. It was incredible to recognize that glory as it was recapped. And having described the different elements in the two rooms, the author now begins the description of the activities in those rooms. And this brings us further forward and brings forward the idea of this narrowing sphere of influence and exposure that was mentioned. The priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle. The outer tabernacle here is the holy place. Verse 2, back in chapter 9, also references the holy place as the outer one, where it says, for there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one. This is actually, as we discussed last week, it is the Greek word for first. The same word occurs in verses 1 and 2, and now again, here in verse 6, the, the translators in the New American Standard felt like outer was a better translation than first. And they did that because of the comparison. They're trying to reveal to us the outer section of the tabernacle versus the inner section, rather than just using first and second. As we'll see, they're a little inconsistent in this and their translation, but nonetheless, we understand what they're doing. They're trying to convey that sense of progression of holiness that goes on. We'll notice also that this is the general priesthood that is being referenced in verse 6. Now, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle. So this is the general priesthood that is entering. As we discussed before, there is a a narrowing. The the lay men, the Levites, the priests, and the high priests all in the outer court. Only the priests and high priests in the the holy place. And then only the high priest in the most holy place once a year. The text says they're continually entering the holy place in verse 6. This is important for us to understand because it shows that this wasn't a room that had no activity. This wasn't a tent that they set up and no one went in. No, not at all. They were continually going in. In fact, that continual nature represented a a twice-a-day entrance by the priesthood. And as they went twice a day, the job that they had to do as the general priesthood— was to trim the lamps of the lampstand and to keep them lit. So they would go, as tradition tells us, at the beginning of the first watch of the morning and at the beginning of the first watch of evening. Basically, they would go at 6 a.m. and they would go at 6 p.m. And they would enter because God commanded that the lampstand always remain lit with its 12 candles as a continual expression and reminder of each of the 12 tribes of Israel and their lamp lit before God. In addition to that duty of trimming the lamp, the other thing that the general priesthood had had to do is once a week they went and they changed the bread of the presence, the show bread, those 12 flat loaves, unleavened bread, that were set before the Lord as another reminder of God's provision through those 12 tribes, that he would continue to provide for them. That those old 12 loaves would be removed, and then the priesthood would partake of eating of those, and the new set would be left for the week. So this was the continual activity that was going on. The high priest, as he entered, he had one duty that he had to perform— In the holy place. And it was to keep the incense on the golden altar burning. Along with the lamps, that incense was a continual uh, reminder to the Lord. Beautiful, beautiful expression in the law. Where it talks about that incense shall rise as a sweet aroma before the Lord. It was to be a reminder of how much God loved the children of Israel. And that aroma would rise before him. And so they were to continually keep that incense burning. But only the high priest was allowed to keep the and to work on the golden altar. So the lamps and incense were to be continually burning as these remembrances of God. Then verse 7 takes us a step further. Quite literally a step as it was actually only one step that physically separated the holy place from the most holy place, or the holy of holies. But that was indeed one very significant step. Verse 7 begins, but into the second. That's a a perfect word, a perfect word-for-word translation, actually, of the Greek. Again, this is where it's a little awkward with regards to outer and second, as opposed to first and second. But we recognize what they're conveying to us. Uh, I, I don't know. It could be that it's just my overly analytical engineering mind when I see that. I'm like, if it says first, make it first. If it says second, make it second. I used to get a tremendous amount of grief by my Greek and Hebrew professors because I was so woodenly literal in my translations of the text. I wouldn't change any of the word order, and it just made such horrible sense in English. And the professor would say, you know that that's not supposed to be that way. Why don't you fix it? And I said, I just can't. That's the way they wrote it. I just need to leave it like that. And uh, so this could be my problem, and I'm sorry for uh, influencing you negatively with my uh, predispositions. But nonetheless, there is this nuance that I, I want us all to see. So as, the, as verse 7 says, But into the second, only the high priest enters once per year. And now we return to the exclusivity of only the high priest and only one time per year on the day of atonement. This is on the day in which the priest was going to make atonement for all of the sins of Israel. We're going to see a whole bunch more about that. Because this doesn't mean that there was only once per year that anyone made atonement before God. Not at all. But this was a very unique and special time. And it was the only time that the priest was allowed to come before God. The next clause in verse 7 is pivotal in our discussion. Where it says, "...not without taking blood." I want you to turn with me back to the Old Testament, back to Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 11. Leviticus 16 and verse 11. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 121. Here in Leviticus 16, 11, we see the subject of the blood coming forward and where it is introduced. It's interesting as well that when it comes up in Hebrews, this is the author using that wonderful grammatical device where the blood will be the next comparison in our next major section of Hebrews. But he brings it up here just to to show us this introduction of the topic. But what about this idea of blood? Well, Leviticus explains the law regarding the feasts and offerings, which I previously mentioned. You remember, I encouraged you to read Leviticus as we started into Hebrews. And if you did, this will be familiar. And if you didn't, it's still a good time to dive in because we're going to be here for a while. And we're right in the thick of all that's being discussed. Leviticus 16 is the law concerning the day of atonement. And as we consider that law, it begins and it goes through in the first 10 verses, the discussion of the scapegoat. We're going to leave that for another time, and Lord willing, we'll come back to it at some juncture. But I want to pick up at verse 11. Follow along as I read Leviticus 16, beginning at verse 11. Then Aaron shall offer the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his household, and he shall slaughter the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself. All right, this is offering number one. It is the bull that is slaughtered, and that sin offering is for Aaron and for his family. It is an offering which allows him to enter as high priest for the rest of the nation. He is bringing that to confess his sins and the sins of his family before he starts addressing the sins of Israel. Very important to realize that there are more than one sacrifice that occur on the Day of Atonement. Let's continue in verse 12. He shall take a fire pan full of coals of fire from upon the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense And bring it inside the veil. So he's to take a fire pan. We're familiar with the fire pans from Nadab and Abihu, who took the wrong stuff on the fire pan, and the Lord consumed them with fire. He's to go to the golden altar, which is in the holy place, And he is to take some of the ashes that are still burning as if we were to go to a campfire and to take some of the coals out of the base of the fire and put them on the fire pan. And in addition to that, and separate from that, he is to have two handfuls of sweet incense. A different mixture than the holy mixture which is prescribed for the altar. We carry on in verse 13 he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the ark of the testimony, otherwise he will die. As he enters through the veil, he is to take the two handfuls, which are the sweet incense, which were designed such that they would smoke profusely, And he would put those upon the burning coals. And a tremendous smoke would come before him so that he would not see the mercy seat and be destroyed. That he would not see God who dwelt upon the mercy seat and be destroyed. Verse 14 carries forward. Moreover, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his fingers on the mercy seat on the east side. Also in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. So you're going in as the high priest. You've got this incense that now is smoking profusely. You're not to see the mercy seat, but you're to take some of the blood that you also have in a pan, and you are to sprinkle it with your finger on the east side, and then seven times in front of the Ark of the Covenant. This is not a place where you want to be making a mistake. And yet you can't see what's going on. The, the heaviness of this, the, the kabod, as the Hebrew would say, the weightiness of what's going on is indescribable. We know, and God has shown Nadab and Abihu as those who have wrongly performed this ritual, and God killed them on the spot by fire. You don't want to blow this. Ritual tells us that they actually put bells on the hems of their robes so that if the bells stop ringing and they stop moving, and they would also have a rope around their feet, that they would pull them back out after God had killed them. It was a very significant endeavor. It goes on in verse 15. Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. That means he would go back outside. So he's been in, he has done the work regarding the bull and the sin offering for himself and his people. He goes back outside, he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat, and in front of the mercy seat. He shall make atonement for the holy place. "...because of the impurities of the sons of Israel, and because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And thus he shall do for the tent of meeting, which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. When he goes in to make atonement in the holy place, no one shall be in the tent of meetings until he comes out." that he may make atonement for himself and for his household and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it, shall take some of the blood of the bull and of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar on all sides. With his finger he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it seven times and cleanse it and from the impurities of the sons of Israel consecrated. So after he has gone twice into the Holy of Holies, he comes back out to the golden altar, which is before the veil, which he was previously just beyond, and his heart is doubtlessly thumping out of his chest because he has survived this long. And now he takes the blood of the other two sacrifices and he sprinkles it on the horns. The altar was uh, a, a fixture about the size of the pulpit and it had horns that came off the corners of it, golden horns. And it was these horns upon which he was to put the blood. So it was an incredible process that the priest was to go through as he went in to the Holy of Holies. And obviously, there could be no mistake in that which he endeavored into. Let's look back now into our text in Hebrews 9, now that we have the full understanding about what this whole process of the atonement looked for. And back to Hebrews 9 and verse 7. It said, The blood he takes is for himself and for the people. Now you remember back from Hebrews 8, that this is why Jesus' ministry is superior to that of the earthly high priesthood. Not only is it heavenly versus earthly, but the law was flawed because it had sinful priests. They had to make atonement for themselves before they were qualified to make atonement for the nation. But notice something else in this last Clause of verse 7. It says, and hold on to your hat. It's you you sit tight for this because it's the atonement is for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. That means sins which they did not know of. Okay, well that brings a question up, doesn't it? Are there other sins that we commit? Absolutely. Were they any different than us? Absolutely not. Now, these that are being spoken of, these sins committed in ignorance, we call these the sins of omission. Blood, we all have those. This is something I talk about from time to time, that we need to continually strive to know what sins we commit that we don't even know. Because if we are truly to grow in holiness and grow in sanctification, we must know those sins because we all have them. But what about the other sins? What of the sins of commission? Those that are not in ignorance. Well, you see, there are two types of those that are not committed in ignorance. There are those which they knew of that they accidentally committed. Such as touching a dead body. That was a sin viewed by the law. It need to have atonement made for it. When those sins which were done, of which you were aware and were accidental, you were immediately to go and to offer that sacrifice. You did not wait for one of the major feasts. You were to go immediately and to make it right with the Lord, so to speak. So that was the process which was to happen for the sacrifices that were committed accidentally, but of which they knew. But... The others are those that are committed on purpose. Oh, that it weren't so with us. But indeed, as with them, so also there are sins which they committed, which they knew full well were in disobedience to God. What does the Old Testament say about those? If these are for the sins committed in ignorance, and the others that they committed knowingly but accidentally, what was to happen for the sins that were committed? purposefully. Well, the Old Testament is very clear. For those sins committed willfully against God, the offender was to be put to death by stoning in most cases. This is an incredible consideration. Where does this leave us? Do we say, oh, well, we're under grace and not under law and praise the Lord that we are. But does that mean that we get a pass and we need not worry about this? It's interesting as I've been reading and looking through Dr. MacArthur's systematic theology and we've been talking a little bit about that that what's clearly stipulated is it is not the grace that gives us freedom but we have greater responsibility because we are under Christ and not under the law. We have a, a greater understanding of the reality of the price that has been paid. These believers, these followers, these false followers even, they were recognizing the blood of animals. Now that is not to minimize it. The slaughtering at your hand of an animal is a horrific affair, which I pray you never have to experience. I have, and it is brutal, to take a life But we are talking about something so much more in our case. We are talking about the life of the Son of God. It is that to which we are responsible for our sins committed in full knowledge. How do we consider those sins? Is this something that makes us stop and recognize our offense? Or is this something we just go, well, you know, it just it's not that big a deal. God hasn't smoked me yet for it, so I think I'm going to be fine. I hope that never is that your thought. We must consider more fully this understanding of our offense and our greater culpability because of Christ. It is His blood that was shed. It is His blood, which Hebrews tells us, that we trample underfoot when we sin Willfully how much greater offense do we bear? The picture of the tabernacle and the priestly duties and sacrifices is a picture of the incredible glory recapped. But it is very much like that hike that we've been on. We see some of the grandeur, but we don't yet see the peak. Our next point carries us further up the path, and our second point is the illuminating glory referenced. The illuminating glory referenced. It's in verses 8 to 10. Verse 8 opens up by showing who the illuminating glory is. It is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been referenced three times prior to this in Hebrews. But in each of those cases, it has been in one of the warning passages. That it has been one of the stark warnings against sin. That's not the case here. Yet still the Spirit is sent bringing a message. Look at verse 8. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. The message that the Holy Spirit brings is that the way into the holy of holies is not yet known. Now that makes us back up for a minute, doesn't it? And ask, what does that mean? I mean, we've just seen the discussion about the way into the holy of holies. What's he talking about? Isn't that just what we've been going through? Well, it is indeed what we've been going through. But this is different. The Greek words here for holy place in verse 8 are identical to the Greek words back in Hebrews 8, 2. Turn back to chapter 8 of Hebrews and verse 2 for just a moment with me. Hebrews 8 and 2 says, a minister in the sanctuary. Okay, it is that phrase in the sanctuary that is the identical Greek phrase to what we have. So what do we have to ask next? What's the context of Hebrews chapter 8. Go back to the beginning of verse 1 with me. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary, and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched not man. What is the reference here? It is the heavenly tabernacle. What the Holy Spirit is saying is the way to the heavenly tabernacle has not yet been revealed. It was that which the Holy Spirit is telling us that the path has not yet been shown to this outer tabernacle. Again, literally the holy of holies, while the first tabernacle is standing. Keep in mind the timing of our writing. This book was written around 65 A.D. to those Jewish believers in Rome. The temple practice is still ongoing in Jerusalem. He is saying here that as long as the earthly temple and its system are being observed, are being relied upon, the way into the heavenly tabernacle is not revealed— You cannot serve two masters. You cannot follow one path and hope to get by another path to the eternal dwelling of God. In our modern vernacular, all roads don't lead to the top of the mountain. Only one does. Only the path through Jesus Christ. Those who think they're going to be good people are not going to get there. As difficult as it is for us to say this in light of those that are our family members and our loved ones who truly in our eyes were good people, we know that there is none good but one There is but one path, and it is closed until such time as people stop relying upon the other. The verb here in verse 8, disclosed, which beautifully translates the original context, saying, has not yet been disclosed, is an excellent presentation of this idea. One commentator notes, the verb is most exact, for the way to the heavenly sanctuary has been foreshadowed as Hebrews 8, 5 says, where it talks about sketch and shadow of the heavenly original. The sanctuary has been foreshadowed and prefigured, but was not yet made manifest to those who were relying upon the old system. What our author is doing, he's setting up the comparison. Here is the earthly tabernacle we've just seen, glorious in its representation and orchestration by God the nuances for the people of Israel and the way that God showed them the importance of their sin and how it had to be dealt with. But their meeting with him, it's only once a year. And only the high priest gets the opportunity. He's going to lead us to a comparison of this system with the heavenly tabernacle. But it's just the introduction. This is the first reference, the illuminating glory. And as soon as the reference is given, it is pulled back. The Spirit says you can't go there while you're relying on the earthly tabernacle. We know that this is a comparison because it continues on the function of the earthly tabernacle in verses 9 and 10. But primarily on the limitations of that tabernacle. Look at verse 9 as it continues on. And it says, uh, to conclude from verse 8 and carry forward, it says has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle, which is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. The outer tabernacle, literally the first tabernacle, the holy place. It is important to recognize this contrast here now between, that has been set up between the holy place, the first room of the tabernacle, and the heavenly tabernacle, And that there is something that separates them. What is it that separates even the two rooms of the earthly tabernacle? The outer and the inner. It's a veil, isn't it? Can you think of something that might have happened to that veil? Something that, say, that was 30 years or so ago before this. Something about a veil uh, that happened from the, the top to the bottom. Does that remind you of something? Good. Tuck that away for just a moment. Because that outer tabernacle is now that which is separated from the heavenly sanctuary. Like a veil separates the holy place from the holy of holies, so also, symbolically, is the outer tabernacle separated from the heavenly tabernacle. And because of that, the earthly tabernacle, the outer tabernacle, is a symbol. So... For the time its sacrifices are observed, it's not the, the real element. It's only a symbol. The literal Greek translation of that word symbol is a word we're very familiar with in English. It is the word parabole. That is our word parable. You see, it's not just a symbol, but it's a parable. And other translations call it a figure, or symbolic, or an illustration. The reason that there isn't great agreement is because this is a parable. What's a parable? A parable is where a known truth is cast alongside a spiritual truth in order to do two things. To hide from those who are not believers the truth of that passage and to reveal to those who are the spiritual truths that are there. It's telling us that the earthly tabernacle is a parable. It is pointing the way to the eternal tabernacle. But for those who do not believe, they will not see that way. It's hiding the true meaning. Verse 9 goes on, and it says, Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. The the gifts and sacrifices we talked about back at the beginning of chapter 8. You can go back and listen to those messages, they're important nuances, but for now, our biggest consideration is what they cannot do. That they cannot make the worshipper perfect in conscience. The the subject here now, notice, is not the priest, it is all of Israel. It is anyone who is a worshipper, the priest, of course, included. But the offering cannot make them perfect in conscience. The idea of perfection is that of complete. And and this is vital in Hebrews. We're going to see much more about it as we move ahead. But what isn't complete is the conscience. It's the worship, the worshiper's understanding of his standing before God. As he considers his place before God, his conscience is not clear because of these sacrifices. And we've talked about it. Why is that? Because the moment the sacrifice occurs, sin begins to accrue again. There is never an ongoing clearance of the mind and heart. Because that sacrifice is only temporary. This offering is pointing ahead to something better, but it too is part of the parable. It's an object lesson of a system that's pointing ahead to a spiritual reality. Verse 10 explains why this was the case where it says, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. These are secondary elements that this cleansing is providing for. Food and drink, that's as if you eat the wrong thing. Oh, slipped, had to have a ham sandwich. You know, went over by the Gentiles and it just smelled too good. Had to have a little bacon. Okay, oh, well, that's a sin. Got to take care of that. Or maybe it's an issue of washing. Oh, you know, I forgot to wash seven times before I had dinner. Um, that's a sin. Got to take care of that. These are various elements, but they're regulations only for the body. These offerings are only of an external element. They're certainly not those that would make the conscience perfect. All of these regulations were, as Dr. MacArthur notes, regulating the visible action without changing the inner man. There are much bigger issues at stake in the pursuit of holiness and following God than if you eat the wrong thing or don't wash the right way. Yet these are only for a time, even in their cleansing. That is the time of reformation, as verse 10 says. That time of Reformation, the the Greek word there for Reformation, meaning to make that which is out of alignment straight. So it's saying that all of these things that are going on, these parables, these symbols, they're out of alignment. They're not the straight way. Once again, we have a reference to that which is not fully explained and understood. The Holy Spirit has illumined the initial reference, But it is not yet fully disclosed. This is the illuminating glory reference. But our third point moves us to our title's fulfillment. That is, to the revelation of the inconceivable glory. Our third point is the immeasurable glory revealed. The immeasurable glory revealed. And it's in verses 11 to 12. Our third point begins in verse 11 where it says, but when Christ appeared. But when Christ appeared. What a glorious beginning. But when Christ appeared. The phenomenal contrast that comes forward here. Unfortunately, as we consider this glorious beginning, our time has come to a glorious end. And so we're going to have to pick that up next week as we come back together. But for now, we're left to consider what we've seen. We've seen some amazing views of this peak. Incredible glory in the earthly tabernacle with all of its beauty and its awe, the reverence of its sacrifices. We've seen the Holy Spirit and his reference even to a greater glory, that of the heavenly sanctuary. Yet the way to that reality is not revealed while the earthly glory is being admired. It's almost like it's an impossible path. We're following on our hike up the mountain and we see a path that goes off the side. It looks like a shortcut, but when we start to follow it, we see it goes off a cliff. That was a mountain goat path. We can't follow it. So this path is too difficult. It's because there is something blocking the way. The parable that isn't revealing full spiritual access. And here is why that happens. The outer tabernacle is a parable because the heavenly sanctuary, and in the heavenly sanctuary, there is no outer tabernacle. There is no two rooms in the heavenly sanctuary. There's no outer and inner tabernacle, no holy place and holy of holies. Why? Because the veil is rent. There is no separation from God. Jesus Christ has rent the veil, when he gave up his spirit on the cross and cried out to the Father that it is finished. There is no more separation. So as we return to this parable, it leaves the question, how are you responding to that parable? No, we aren't focusing on the old covenant and the old tabernacle and thus having our way way concealed to the heavenly tabernacle but we can have just as big a hindrance. We can see the view to the peak that is Jesus in plain view of the path that we are to be on, and yet never really pursue it. We just sit down at the bottom of the mountain and look at the top and go, oh yeah, that's Jesus up there. And, and I made a profession about him one time, so I'm great. I go to church most of the time, and and I'm great. Yes, I, I know him, but we never fully pursue him. That we rarely, if ever, consider our sins and the gravity which they have. Oh, maybe a time or two during the week if we do something egregious, but rarely, if ever, on a daily basis. Beloved, this is not gospel living. This is a parable. You must be on the path. You must be recognizing every day that your sin is an offense for which Christ gave his life, for which God slaughtered his son so that we might live. It is not a casual consideration. You must be daily climbing. You must be daily recognizing your sin and daily confessing that sin, repenting of what you have done and seeking with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength to follow after Christ. So how does one make sure that they are on the path? How do we confirm that the path to the heavenly sanctuary is not concealed from us? Well, we must recognize what true holiness looks like. Beloved, it is removing sin from our lives, It is as Colossians 3.5 tells us, mortifying the deeds of our flesh, putting them to death. When we see that sin in our lives, we rip it from our flesh, and we throw it to the floor, and we stomp it until it's dead. Have no part in it. You cannot allow that sin to take root because if you do, it will consume you. The sins committed in willful disobedience these are what we must understand. Maybe there are things like not obeying God's command to evangelize. Maybe there are things like not obeying God's commands to disciple. Maybe they're not the blatant things of outright sin. Maybe they're just the the things that we just haven't really wanted to pursue even though God commands them. It is these things, beloved, all of them, that we must confess. But having confessed them, we can't sit on the fence and say, I'm going to confess them again tomorrow because I'm not going to do it again tomorrow. I'm not going to pursue these things or I am going to do that which is wrong. No, we have to change. That is what repentance is. It is a new path. I cannot keep walking this path. Yes, you may be on a good path. You may be pursuing Christ, but it is a continual climb. It is a continual growth. We can never be complacent. We can never think that we are getting to where we need to be because always there is more before us. But as we pursue that more, the joy that comes with it is unspeakable. And all of these things happen, beloved, from one offense, and that is not keeping God before your eyes on a day-to-day and moment-to-moment basis? Because in effect, that is a willful rejection of God. It is the sin of your busyness that can conceal him from your view. How can you change this? By keeping him in front of yourself. How about by the music that you listen to? Do you listen to music during the day? Is it secular or is it Christian? Oh, I, I just love the 70s songs. Well, so do I. I grew up then. But you know what? They don't reflect Christ. We need to have things before us that continue to bring the savior to our mind. Perhaps, how about listening to some sermons during the day? Do you realize the blessing that we have in this day and age and the exposure to incredible men and their texts? How about Bible reading? Are we keeping the scripture before our eyes? Keeping three by five cards in our pocket putting them on our mirror in our bathroom, putting them on our desk, maybe having a Bible on your desk, maybe having a Bible out in your car, that when you see these things, they're a reminder that, yes, I have more than I must do. Beloved, you have to keep Jesus before you, and you have to keep pushing up the path of sanctification towards Christ. I pray that God will bless you to open the eyes of your heart, to see the path to Jesus more clearly and to pursue it more diligently because as you do, the joy and the peace and the delight in your life will magnify in a way that you cannot imagine. It is worth every ounce of our striving. And I pray that today as we consider this, that we would recognize the many ways which every one of us falls short I do, and so do all of you. And therein say, fine, today I will resolve that I will pursue Christ in a greater way. And that through that, that he would be glorified, that you too would be understanding the growth that exists, and that this church would be built up on our most holy faith, which Christ has given to us.